Hey, this is Dennis Sanders. Welcome to episode 129 of Church and Maine. Welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. This is episode 129. I hope you are having a happy February. Well, the United States has always been somewhat of an outlier when it, on among highly developed nations when it comes to religion. Unlike Canada or Europe, America has always had a strong tradition of people who attend a faith community, if if not every week, at least higher than, on a higher average than their Canadian or European counterparts. Forget or fail, religion has always had an impact on American society. Such things like the abolition of slavery or the civil rights movement really would not have advanced very far if it was not for people of religious conviction. America was also a nation where religious faith was bipartisan. Even the very liberal could be religious. I can particularly remember uh, meeting and then later actually interning in D.C. um, with Dale Kildee. He represented my hometown of Flint, Michigan. And um, so he represented Flint and also um, East Central Michigan. And he was an old-style New Deal pro-Union Democrat who was also a pro-life Catholic. Those kind of Democrats, pro-life Democrats, really don't exist anymore. And it's that's actually a telling sign of kind of where we are headed. Now, the COVID pandemic really has started to change things. But, you know, in reality, these changes were already happening long before March of 2020. But the lockdown really accelerated these trends. In 2021, Gallup released a poll that showed that in 2020, the number of people who belong to a house of worship, and that means a synagogue, uh, a church, or a mosque, fell below 50% for the first time uh, since Gallup started taking that survey back in 1937. So in 2020, just 47% of Americans said that they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, and that was down from 50% in 2018, and get this, it was down from 70% in 1999. Now, that survey, I don't think, took COVID really into account, but a more recent survey did see how that the pandemic affected organized religion. And those findings are rather troubling. The American Enterprise Institute Survey Center on on American Life, in conjunction with uh, NORC at the University of Chicago, conducted a survey to see who regularly attends a house of worship. And they released those findings in early January. The findings are showing that there is a growing gap between those that attend a faith community on a regular basis and those that don't. 
And that has significant implications for American society. So for today's episode, I had the opportunity to talk to one of the researchers, Daniel Cox. Daniel is the director of the Survey Center on American Life and a senior fellow in polling and public opinion at the American Enterprise Institute. And he uh, focuses on public opinion uh, and survey research, religious change and measurement, as well as social capital and youth politics. Before joining AEI, he was the research director at PRRI, which stands for Public Religion Research Institute, which he co-founded, and where he led the organization's qualitative and quantitative research program. So, without further ado, let's listen to this important interview with Daniel Cox. Daniel Cox, thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with us here today. Uh, it's great to be here. I think the first question I want to ask is, um, you know, being a pastor myself, I have seen some of the changes that have taken place post-COVID um, and talking to others, uh, other pastors, other congregations, that there are something similar. Um and there have been other surveys that have kind of looked into religion, especially organized religion after COVID. Um, I'm kind of curious, how did this one come together? Um, and how is it kind of answered? What questions are, are is it answering that past surveys haven't? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. And uh, it came about through some conversations with colleagues uh, at NORC at the University of Chicago uh, it's a uh, research uh, and uh, survey firm that does a tremendous amount of, of work on opinion research. They do qualitative, they do quantitative. And we've worked with them for a number of years. And I, I got to talking with some folks there and said I really wanted to get a, a better handle uh, after seeing data myself and talking with folks who were both involved uh, in, in religious communities, both at the leadership level and at the lay level. And hearing things, I'm like, well, what do we actually know nationally uh, was the impact of, of this pandemic? And so after having some conversations you know, I, I, with the folks at NORC, one of the things I learned is, well, well, we have religious affiliation and attendance data for a lot of folks before the pandemic. Why don't we just re-interview those same people two years after and see what has changed, if anything? And so that's exactly what we did. And this is called a panel uh, study design. And it, as opposed to you, you know, traditional surveys, which randomly interview different groups of people, just, you know, if you're doing a survey of uh, the American public, so, you know, age 18 and up, that's, you know, you're not going to get the same people. You're not going to attract the same people over time. And the, mm -hmm. the strength of a panel design is that you reduce a lot of the, the, uh, statistical noise, right? So from different samples, you may have uh, samples that are similar, but not exactly the same. Well, we have the exact same people at two different time periods. So we can say with a lot greater certainty, 
what is the actual effect of this intervening event uh, and the event being the pandemic. So we interviewed uh, uh, around uh, 9,000 respondents, a little more, uh, and we asked them religious affiliation and uh, religious attendance. So how often do you attend religious services? And that's how we set up uh, the, the study. Okay. So one of the things that I found interesting in looking over the survey is what almost seems like a, a sense of a polarization on, on kind of several different levels. So obviously you have uh, conservatives are have levels of, of attendance have dropped, but not as precipitously or, or not as much as liberals, uh, young versus old, uh, kind of those with college degrees and those with, um, that don't. Um, what does that all mean when you're, you're kind of dealing with this? It seems like a very much a polarization among different groups. How does that change society in some ways? Because I think early, if let's say if we went to the 1950s or 1960s, at least it, it seems like the story, and I have no idea if this is the reality, that it seems like people, regardless of who they were, liberal, conservative, uh, black, white, whatever, um, went to church. And that, or to whatever kind of religious institution, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Uh, Dennis, you went right to the heart of the matter here. Uh, <laughs> yes, I mean this is such a key point, and we address it uh, a little bit in in this report. And actually, I have a, a Substack, American Storylines, which I unpack this idea of religious polarization, and I'll talk mm-hmm. about that in just a minute. But when it comes to the religious change that we observed in this study, one of the really interesting things was that we didn't really see much change in terms of religious affiliation. So if you identified uh, as a Protestant or a Catholic or Muslim or Jewish, or you said you had no religion uh, before the pandemic, when we re-interviewed you a couple of years later, you were pretty much likely to say the same thing. And, And that's what we really would have expected. Like I wouldn't have expected a sea change in terms of how people are identifying religiously uh, over the last two years, simply because they were going to services uh, less often, or they were maybe seeing their congregation less often. But what we did uh, measure and identify in the survey was a really significant increase in people who never attend religious services. So, uh, and you hit on a really important point that it wasn't evenly distributed over all kinds of all congregations, all, all religious traditions, and all uh, demographic groups. So the people who we saw the, the largest increases uh, in becoming you know, uninvolved in, in religion completely were people who are politically liberal, uh, people who are never married, and young adults age eighteen to twenty nine. So just to give you uh, a flavor of the, the kind of gaps we, we observed, those groups were about one in three said they never attended religious services before mm-hmm. the pandemic after they were all north of 40%. So liberals, for instance, jumped from 31% never attending to 46% never attending. So nearly half of liberals now saying that they never attend religious services. Uh, And then conservatives saw a a much smaller increase moving from 14 to 20%. So the the, the gap, the religious gap between liberals and conservatives grew pretty significantly over the course of the pandemic. And that's exactly what we're kind of observing writ large in American society that we're seeing 
And not just politics, but a number of different ways, we're becoming a religious, religiously polarized society where we have very religious people and very secular people. Uh, and the sort of the people in the middle, um, that group's shrinking. And what are the the implications of all of that? Because I think growing up, I and I grew up in, in Michigan, and um, the person that represented uh, where I'm from uh, in Flint and kind of that area was a pro-life Democrat um, and very ca- Catholic. And um, that used to be very much a staple within the Democratic Party. Um, there aren't that many pro-life Democrats anymore. Um, you know, what are the implications when you have such a polarization where you have people who might be regular church attenders and people who aren't? And, and that, that then also is kind of factored into the parties. Um, I mean, how does that work or (laughs) <laughs> or does it, uh, it doesn't work well. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's some things that we know from, from social science that when you primarily engage with and interact with people whose, whose backgrounds or politics or religious beliefs are identical or very similar to your own, uh, it can give you kind of a skewed view of the world. It can uh, increase hostility to outgroups. Uh, it can lead to, uh, you know, demonization uh, of other groups and, and misunderstandings and stereotyping. Uh, and so given that American society is incredibly diverse and only growing more so, and we have to all live together, we have to at least find a way to get along, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that kind of, of you know, interaction across boundaries of, of race and religion and politics is it has always been important and will continue to be, but in- increasingly we're seeing a kind of uh, cohesion along multiple different uh, types of characteristics. So if you're liberal, you are a Democrat, you are not religious, you are a college educated, these things are kind of moving together. And on the other side, so if you're a Republican and more likely to be a, a Christian, a conservative Christian at that um, uh, more likely to be uh, less likely to be college educated now. Like, so we're seeing, you know, society wide, this, this uh, Liliana Mason, a political scientist at the university of Maryland describes it kind of as a stacking of identities into mm-hmm. kind of a super identity. And, and it's really making uh, compromise and consensus much more difficult to achieve. And there's something else I'll, I'll, I'll mention too, uh, we're seeing this at the state level too, right? When a lot of our, our political divisions at, at the federal level um, are being magnified in the state. So like the, the political culture and religious culture in Vermont is now significantly different. And there's always been large differences between Vermont and a state like Mississippi, but mm-hmm. they're growing wider. And I'll, I'll give you just one example there from a religious standpoint. So in 2013, uh, 31% of, of Vermonters said that they were religiously unaffiliated, which basically means they, they weren't religious. They were atheists, agnostic, nothing in particular. Um, and among uh, uh, residents of Mississippi, it was only 12%. So, you know, uh, a little less wow. than a 20 point gap. If you fast forward to 2021, now close to half of Vermonters are unaffiliated or not religious, hmm. 45%. Whereas Mississippi barely budged. Um, only 14% are unaffiliated. So Mississippi hasn't really changed. Vermont has become much more secular. 
And uh, it's reflected in you know, the, the approach these two states are taking on a whole variety of issues, whether it's religious liberty or abortion, contraception or LGBTQ rights. Um, in 2016, Mississippi passed the Religious Freedom Law uh, that would, among other things, you know, protect state employees who refuse to license marriages and uh, religious organizations who fire or discipline employees and, and individuals who decide to provide counseling or medical services uh, based on those oppositions. And so that's um, moving in one direction. And in the other way, uh, Vermont's moving uh, in a much more progressive and secular direction. Uh, last fall, it became the first state to pass a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right of abortion and contraception. So, uh, you know, it's, that's not all due to the changing religious demography, but it's, it's playing a role. And I think there's something, you know, to be concerned about uh, when when you just cross over a state line, the, the politics and, and the, you know, the culture changes so dramatically. Uh, and I think we're kind of seeing that at the state level. It'll be really interesting. We're seeing it in abortion policy as well. Mm -hmm. Blue states are moving in one direction and red states are moving in another. One thing that I um, have been interested in, and, and um, I'm someone I'm gay and also married, uh, and I've also been fascinated though because, and this probably makes me a unicorn because, of course, I'm also someone that believes in religious liberty, and have been fascinated over the years of things like um, what has been called the Utah Compromise, um, and that was a case where. Um, LGBTQ groups and um, evangelical and Mormon groups got together and were able to basically hammer out a compromise. Um, are we going to see less of that in the future? Um, and, you know, we also kind of saw that happen a little bit with, um, I believe it was the Respect for Marriage Act um, that just passed back in November with this more kind of polarization, are we just going to see less interest in trying to compromise and and try to come together or at least try to find a way of respecting the, the diversity that we have as a nation and in all of its different forms? Yeah, I, I think that's the worry. And, and people who, who really study political polarization, that is the first thing that they'll say, right, that it, it makes – achieving any kind of consensus, even on policies that are not as, you know, as fraught or where, where disagreement does not run as deep that you don't want to hand the other side a win. You don't like your, your people don't want to see you working with the, you know, the quote unquote enemy. And, and it, it becomes really difficult because there's things, whether it's a debt ceiling or other policies that we, we all need to come, you know, infrastructure, transportation, there, there are things that we just need to work. And if the, we can't bring uh, the two sides together and, and hammer out some compromises, then it becomes really, really difficult. And I think that's kind of where we are, are nationally. And one thing that I think is really interesting too, when you think about the religious dimension of all this, there was a time that a lot of sociologists and, and religion scholars really viewed people who were who are not religious uh, or secular as kind of they're apathetic or they're, uh, you know, quote unquote, unattached believers, um, but people who still remain spiritual, who had a con some connection to religion. Uh, there's a recent book called Secular Surge uh, by David Campbell, Jeffrey Lehman and John Green actually found that secular people have a distinct 
many of them anyway, have a distinct worldview that separates mm-hmm. them. And in my work, one of the things that has been really notable is that secular people are increasingly congregating, meeting, uh, befriending, and even marrying people who are also secular. So even without the infrastructure to support their secular beliefs or secular worldview, we're seeing a kind of religious segregation where secular people are are, are, are being and maintaining close connections with people who share their religious beliefs or worldview and religious people doing the same. And again, the, the problem there is, is it becomes very easy to become kind of trapped by that worldview and, and, you know, you kind of build up walls and that, you know, not allow anything else to get through. Um, so it's understandable from, you know, we, we understand that this in tendency towards homophily where, you know, you want to be with people who share your experience and background and can understand you like that. We know that makes sense. There's, there's a lot of research that, that, um, even goes to show why that's important, but there's a real significant downside as well. One other thing that kind of fascinates me about, and I thought about this in the survey and you may, I think you picked it up is how religious affiliation is not as much based on specific beliefs, but on kind of cultural affinities. Um, And that reminded me of an article I read in Christianity Today by Russell Moore late, I think sometime last year, where we was talking about a lot of people who consider themselves evangelical also don't necessarily participate as much in church. They may, maybe they say they do, but it's more of a cultural thing. So I'm kind of curious when you kind of talk about the people who do maybe attend church more, is there, is it, is kind of baked in that also some kind of a cultural assumption and not necessarily as much a theological um, kind of belief? Yeah, this is a, this is a, a big and, a, and a, an important question when it comes to religious identity. You know, Pew released this really interesting study where they looked at from 2016 to 2020 people who acquired uh, an evangelical identity so that you, they didn't identify in 2016 as evangelical, but they did in 2020. And those folks were disproportionately likely to have a positive view of Trump. And the conclusion a lot of people drew from that is that the, the evangelical label took on cultural or political meaning for a lot of people. And so these folks weren't attending their, you know, their beliefs were uh, a little more heterodox or at least not, uh, traditionally evangelical, or, or what we often think of as evangelical beliefs, uh, but for you know for a reason that that made sense to them, they identified as evangelical. And again, I think that the the political affinity or Trump affinity was what really drew them. And I think that's 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 concerning in, in one way, right? Where you know mm-hmm. our our religious labels are becoming more politicized, and it's one of the things that is really driving disaffiliation in this country. So we're seeing liberals and political moderates far more likely to disaffiliate and leave religion. And I think a lot of that is because of how they view uh, and and how religious activism and religious life has been defined uh, 
by conservative Christians and the Christian right as being primarily about, you know, opposing abortion or opposing gay marriage and say, well, that is what being a Christian is about, right? If that's what it means to be Christian, then I guess that that doesn't include me. Uh, and now we're just seeing a, a widening of, of, the, of that gap. So, you know, liberals are become far more secular and conservatives remain religious. And then, you know, we've now on, on two different important relevant variables, uh, these groups have become uh, moved further apart. So what, how would you respond to people who would say, you know, that it's not really a big deal if there is this kind of religious polarization that America is basically just becoming more kind of like what would be in Europe where there is kind of a highly secularized society, very much a smaller subset that goes to church. Um, how would you respond to that belief or answer? Yeah. So, uh, I study American politics and culture and religion. So, you know, I, I don't know as much about the, I mean, I'm, I'm probably familiar with the sort of trend of secularization in Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. But I know in, in the U.S. case, for, for much of our history, so much of American social and civic life has flowed through the church, has flowed through congregations. Uh, you know, we know from uh, a bevy of research that, uh, you know, donating money to particular causes, volunteering, uh, all these pro-social behaviors and activities are higher among frequent attenders. So people who are involved in a religious community are more active in a wide variety of social and civic pursuits. And that really matters, right? Because these people are doing really, really important work. And it's not that, that secular people, uh, you know, aren't necessarily opposed to these things. Um, but I think that the, the, the being physically proximate to other people, being participating in a community uh, is really, really important. It's why you see that, that it's not identity that matters so much when you, when you think about these things, it's attendance. So it's the people who come regularly who are involved. Mm -hmm. And those people are, are really, really, really important. They're they sort of like civic glue to our society and to a lot of communities. And, you know, to the extent that we're seeing attendance rate plummet, uh, you know, what are the downstream effects of that societally? And I think we're starting to see that in the decline of, of civic and associational life that, that Putin documented, that my work has shown in terms of the decline of friendships, um, mm -hmm. that we have many fewer friends than we once had. And I think it's not entirely due to the decline of church attendance, but I certainly think, you know, it's playing a considerable role. Kind of getting back to the impetus of all of this, which was COVID and um, kind of the lockdowns. How did how did this, in some ways, affect religious attendance? And you know, we in in my case, the church where I'm a pastor, we did not meet in person for a little over a year. Um, what did that do? Having this chance where you necessarily weren't in person. You might have been um, doing it online, um, but how how has that, in in some ways, changed our, our the religious landscape? 
Yeah. So there's two things that are, I think worth mentioning here. Uh, the first is that the people who left, so the people who now are not attending at all, those folks who disproportionately were people who were at the margins before, beforehand. Mm-hmm. They, they were irregular attenders, so they go maybe once or twice a year. And the idea or the thought is that that the pandemic just kind of pushed them out altogether. Um, but the people who regularly engaged, by and large, they were still engaged, right? And that, that's part of this polarization, right? Where the middle is, is shrinking, but we're seeing on the edges the, the most involved and the least involved, um, those groups are, are growing. But I think the other thing that's really interesting is uh, what opportunities there are for online worship, right? So I, I talked to, to uh, some pastors about that during that idea during the pandemic, and I wrote about it too. Uh, and I think, I don't know if you share this, this belief or this view, but a lot of the people I talked to were, were uh, not overly eager to go all in on online worship, that the physical gathering, being in a physical space together, uh, was really, really important. And, and that I think is, is absolutely understandable. Um, but I do think that some of the places that did, did well during the pandemic, they were able to incorporate online functionality or with, you know, in person, whether they were created and doing it outside or, um, you know, put up tents or they did a sort of a, uh, a, a drive-in, uh, type of situation that, that, they they seem to do better uh, in terms of, of staving off membership losses, uh, but I, but I do think there's a really you know so much of our lives have migrated online whether it comes to to dating or shopping or finding friend groups uh, that I, I think that's you know just a natural outgrowth of our of our lives moving so much online and, and there's probably good things about it and bad things about it, but but it, you know. For an increasing number of people who are growing up completely outside religion, right? So they have no formative religious exposure experience. Uh, I think online religious communities offer one way to kind of glimpse into this thing that otherwise would be, seem very foreign. Uh, and so I think in that way, you know, it may present a, a, an important opportunity for some uh, uh, houses of worship, some congregations. Yeah, I would agree. And that's one of the things that we have continued to do online, um, even though we are in person, that we do live streaming. And that has actually brought in people who, for a lot of different reasons, aren't able to be in person. Um, So that could be actually a, a way of hopefully continuing to keep people engaged, even if it's not in a physical, physical way. Mm-hmm. Well. Um, I know that you are time limited, but I do want to ask one final question is kind of where do you see all of this heading? I mean, obviously it's not good to have such a religiously polarized country. What do you think is the future 10, 15 years down the road and how, how is that, does that help or, harm kind of the American experiment, the, the, our democratic experiment? So the, the easiest answer, uh, and I'll preface this, but I'm not a demographer is that if you look at the age of some of these congregations, so, you know, United Methodists, uh, I think 
like 43% of people identify with that denomination are, are age 65 or older. Uh, a lot of the mainline denominations are that old and, and mm-hmm. evangelical denominations aren't faring so well themselves. I think for Southern Baptists, about a third of their membership is retirement age. And so you project that out, you, you know, you add 10, 15 years and while you're, those people are probably not going to be around, uh, you know, due to generational replacement or which is a nice way to say they're dying off. And so without a major exogenous event, so something happens to kind of totally shake up current trends, which is possible, uh, you know, there's the, a continued decline seems almost a certainty. Uh, in fact, there, there was a recent Pew study that projected out over the next like 40 or so years. And I think in nearly every projection they produced, which is based on a variety of different factors from immigration to differential birth rates, they showed a pretty significant decline. Uh, and what that means for society is difficult to, to suss out at this point. One thing that I've my research focuses on too is uh, social capital and understanding new forms of social capital. Uh, so increasingly, particularly for college-educated Americans, they're finding ways to connect and create social capital outside sort of formal structures. So it's not necessarily the PTA, it's not necessarily the Elks Club or other social, you know, traditional social clubs, or it's not, it's outside religion, but it might be through their uh, spin class. It might be through a workout group. It might be through um, some sports league that they're in or a hobby group. And they're finding these kind of alternative ways to kind of piece together uh a pretty robust and, and, and uh, important social uh, social uh, connection. The problem is that for uh, Americans without a college degree, the, the story is very different. And we're, they're seeing really significant declines in their social networks. They're shrinking. They have less uh, support, uh, that, you know, whether it's, you know, personal, emotional support, financial support that they would have gotten through some of these traditional institutions. Uh, and so when religion declines, it was, it was disproportionately, disproportionately helping uh, Americans who were more downscale, right? So people without a college education, people who are poor. Mm-hmm. And again, those people are, are the folks that I think I'd be um, most concerned about. Obviously there's society wide uh, impacts, but I think that the people who will be most impacted by this, this, are impacted and will continue to be impacted are are those kinds of folks. Okay. Um, You mentioned a sub stack that you do. Uh, Would you be able to kind of share that or where people can find it? Yes. uh, It's, it's at Substack. uh, It's called American storylines, storylines storylines.substack.com. And I write a lot about these issues of religion, um, generations and, and change. Okay. Well, Daniel Cox, thank you so much for taking the time. This was um, an important thing to talk about, especially um, in the aftermath of COVID and where we're going next. So again, thank you. Thank you so much. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you.
So I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I really did enjoy talking to him. Um, I think it was really enlightening. I, I did get a chance to read the survey um, before, um, and I think putting his spin helped. But as the report says, that there are some troubling signs. Um, there are also some signs of hope. Uh, we did not get really deep into talking about um, online ministry, but that may be a saving grace. I know that is something that my uh, congregation that I lead has continued to do, uh, mostly because I'm the one that does it, um, and I'm kind of a techie and communications guy, so I want to do it. But I think that that's also been a valuable ministry is reached out to people. Um, will that make a difference? I have no idea. Um, I do want to, before I uh, continue, that the link to that survey um, and also to Daniel's Substack, where he has some other interesting findings that he shares that didn't don't make it into the survey. Um, those links are going to be in the show notes. And I'm also including an article um, that was written by Peter Beinart um, for The Atlantic back in 2017 about the post-religious right. Um, I think that that's a fascinating thing. Uh, one of the things that... Um, is highlighted in the the findings, and we talked about. You probably heard in the interview is how kind of religion, in some ways, has become an identity. Um, and one of the things that I find fascinating, especially in the rise of Donald Trump, is that you have a lot of people who call themselves evangelical, but they don't attend church. Um, really, very seldom. Um, but they have all the kind of the hallmarks of at least say that they are religious. So I thought that that might be an interesting thing to read. Um, check it out. Let me know what you think. I'd also like to find out to know, and I'm curious because I want to talk about this more, is what is your church like post-pandemic? My congregation is like a lot of them. Uh, we lost, we're a very small congregation, but we lost people um, when we resumed in person. Now, we had been worshiping online for a year, um, but some of the people, this was a kind of a way for them to not be apart anymore. Um, and I know that that has happened at other congregations, and other congregations actually um Worshiping apart really basically killed their congregation. They closed. Um, so I'm curious, what has that been like? Um, have you lost people? And have you done anything to reach out to those who stopped attending? Did you even gain new members? Um, did your church close? I'd like to hear those stories because I think it's kind of important. I want to hear that and maybe... Um, Actually, at some point, I'd actually love to talk to some pastors uh, to kind of get a firsthand view. Um, and I do actually want to open that up to not just Christians. I mean, I, this is a Christian podcast, but um, I'm curious to see, you know, how did this affect synagogues? How did this affect mosques? Um, let me know those stories and drop me a line um at uh, churchinmaine um, at substack.com. So that's by email at churchinmaine at substack.com. Also, please consider subscribing to the Substack. That way you can get the latest articles and podcast episodes in your inbox. 
if you have been following me on Substack, I am sharing more written articles. Some of them are, are ones that are kind of archive things I, I wrote a few years ago that I kind of wanted to share again. But I'm also writing some new things. I um, will be having one that's coming up pretty soon, kind of about um, from my experience, but from other, but also from an article I was reading about white evangelicals and why how we think about white evangelicals is probably not right um, or not correct. And um, so if you want to know more, you'll have to read it. Um, that So that is coming up. Um, I'm trying to kind of build up the subscriber base um, and I'm hoping, and maybe it will be this, this article, who knows, with more premium content, we'll see. Um, but whatever, please consider... Uh, going to Church in Maine Substack and subscribe. And that is uh, Church in Maine, all one word, dot substack dot com. So, um, and again, you can also follow um, Church in Maine on various social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Again, the links are in the show notes. So that's it for this episode, episode 129 of Church in Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Um, please f- uh, feel free to share this uh, podcast with someone that you may not, you may know. Uh, take care, everyone. Godspeed, and I will see you very soon. Mm-hmm.